Welcome to the Theology Research News podcast. Theology Research News provides updates from KU Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies to a worldwide academic audience. It features interviews with faculty members, discussions with visiting scholars, and updates about our publications, conferences, and other events. Please visit our website at theologyresearchnews.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Nathan Betts, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Daniel Galadza, the noted Byzantinist and liturgical theologian who is currently fellow of the University of Regensburg's Jenseits der Kanon, or Beyond the Canon, project. Previously, he was assistant professor for historical theology at the University of Vienna. Galadza is deacon of the Kiev Archeparchy in the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church, and he joins us just before the conference here in Leuven on the liturgy and literature of the Lavra of St. Sabas. So, uh, Daniel, what, what brings you to Leuven? Well, uh, first, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Nathan, and it's a pleasure to be here with you in the Faculty of Theology Library. I'm here in Leuven for a conference that starts today. Uh, it's called the Lavra of St. Sabas. Uh, liturgy and literature in communities and contexts. So it's about a monastery in Palestine, about um, 14 kilometers southeast of Jerusalem. And this monastery dates back to the sixth century AD, of course. Um, it's a today a Greek Orthodox monastery, part of the um, Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem but over the course of its um, about 1,400 year history, it was a home to monks who prayed in Greek, in Syriac, in Georgian, in Arabic, and even in Latin, um, probably other languages. And they also spoke different languages. Sometimes they prayed in one language and spoke another language. And because of this, um, multilingual, multi-ethnic community. It was a place where lots of translations took place of uh, liturgical and uh, theological texts, and it was a point of um, diffusion of these texts, trans things coming from as far away as India in the east and passing to the west to uh, Constantinople, and points further west. So that's one aspect of this conference. The other one is that as a, an important monastery in Palestine, it um, left a certain, calls it the Sabbite heritage, a, a strong mark on what we call today the Orthodox Church or any church that prays in the Byzantine rite, so to say. Um, and is kind of the benchmark for how people should pray. It left uh, certain rules and liturgical texts that people follow to this day. And um, part of the, the liturgical side of the conference is to investigate um, in detail what we know about the texts that were left behind. Because although people say very often that, for example, this form of um, evening vigil that goes from Saturday to Sunday in the Byzantine rite or on the eves of feast days or the way people pray the liturgy of the hours uh, developed at this monastery. We still don't have any critical edition of the Greek or Syriac or Georgian texts mm. that come from here. So um, the goal is uh, to 
bring these scholars that deal with Greek, Syriac, Arabic, and Georgian texts, um, and to bring people who deal with literature and liturgy mm -hmm. together uh, to dialogue so that you know, you're kind of not missing part of the picture. You get yeah. the full sense of the yeah. picture. Do you know, is there in, in your, okay, so this, or, this conference is being organized by Joshua Haydn here, also here at Caleb, and do you know if there's any plan that there would, there would be uh, any volumes or specific work that comes out of this conference? Well, um, the idea for the conference, I could say, developed uh, about seven years ago in conversation with some of the people that um, are participants in the conference, speakers at the conference at Dumbarton Oaks. I was there for one year as a junior fellow and heard about this Evergetis project, which was an interdisciplinary study of a monastery somewhere in Constantinople. Uh, people don't even know to this day where it was located, but nevertheless they got a whole ton of people um, interested in talking about it because the monastery left behind some important texts. So here we have a place, we know exactly the place, it still exists today, it's still mm -hmm. a functioning Greek Orthodox monastery. and. Um, um, so the idea was discussed there, and I kept on, you know, daydreaming that, that there could be something done on this, uh, and mentioned it once to Professor Verheyden when mm -hmm. I was here for a conference on um, Eastern Christianity. I think it was the inaugural conference of the Center for Eastern uh, Eastern Christianity yeah. here in Leuven. And uh, the reason I mentioned it to him was because he had uh, mentioned various possibilities for continuing studies. Uh, the funding opportunities here and the connection between the university and or perhaps his personal connection with uh, Peter's publishing house mm -hmm. and he said if you gather a conference uh, and a volume comes out of it then uh, he'll be able to help support it through the university so uh, the idea is to publish a volume and in fact um, it's uh, providential that this conference is happening here because um, in 2001, Peters published the proceedings of a conference that took place in Jerusalem and in Haifa in 1998, dedicated to the Sabbat heritage, so mm -hmm. the, the, um, the heritage of this monastery in Palestine, the Lavra of St. Sabas. And so 21 years later, uh, after the conference, um, we're coming back to some of the similar questions, and the, the editor of that volume, Joseph Patrich, from Hebrew University in Jerusalem, is the first speaker at the conference here today. Excellent. This is very interesting because I think it was just maybe two weeks ago that we had um, Father Justin, who is the library at the uh, St. Catherine's at Sinai, and he was giving a talk about the heritage um, at St. Catherine's and you know their library and kind of the things that are becoming that, that are being unearthed. His focus was more on the continuous spiritual heritage and actually for listeners of this podcast um, this is also being recorded as a podcast and, and also I believe is a video with accompanying slides that you can that you can download and listen as well but um, seems to be a lot of attention right now in Leuven on, on these traditions and the resources that are becoming available to scholars and, and what this means for our future work. So it's really exciting. I wish I could participate in this conference, but alas, I'm busy. Uh, just wondering, so I'd like to put this conference into juxtaposition a little bit with, the, uh, with your book, which just came out from Oxford University Press. Um, 
Could you, could you tell us a little bit about that book and maybe the problem you were trying to solve or the question you were seeking to answer with that book? And, and yeah. Yeah, so the, um, the book is called Liturgy and Byzantinization in mm -hmm. Jerusalem. So that's uh, probably not a word you'll find in the dictionary, Byzantinization. The process of yeah. being Byzantinized. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. It, may, it makes sense. It's not that hard to figure out. But um, it investigates the question of how the liturgy in Jerusalem, so the way Christians in Jerusalem prayed in late antiquity, mm -hmm. changed. And um, the process has always been mentioned in scholarship, and not only in liturgical scholarship, but also in um, studies of Greek literature or Middle Eastern history, um, or archaeology even, uh, because people noted that the descriptions we have of liturgy uh, in the 4th or 5th or 6th century and manuscripts that are extant in particularly in Georgian and Armenian coming from Jerusalem and now actually thanks to um, a lot of the work of Father Justin in Sinai we have access to manuscripts that were let us say rediscovered right. and called the new finds and uh, since their rediscovery in 1975 in Sinai we also have some Greek manuscripts that point to this older tradition and if we look at texts coming from the 12th, 13th and century to the present day, we see that the way Christians, for example, the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem today prays, it's more or less the same as Byzantine Rite Christians throughout the world. There's really no difference. So what happened? How did this tradition change? So that was the main question of the book. I'm not sure if I fully answered it. Um, no, I'm, I'm sure I didn't fully answer it. It raises more questions than probably answers, but until um, I began my research, the main theories consisted of um, some kind of external influence from Constantinople, um, certain imperial or uh, ecclesiastical pressure on Jerusalem, forcing it to adopt uh, the, the right of Constantinople, um, or patriarchs from Jerusalem being exiled to Constantinople and bringing back kind of the ready-made thing mm -hmm. uh, in liturgical books back to Jerusalem. And so the, the conclusion I came to was that this is not the case because we have evidence from um, manuscripts that were copied in the Lava of St. Sabas on Mount Sinai and other places in Jerusalem where it shows that the local Christians were aware of various traditions and were trying to uh, kind of make them function together, to synthesize them or to at least um, resolve certain conflicts between mm -hmm. them. And we know already from um, the late antique period that there were lots of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, so people were praying in different languages, people were bringing some of their own traditions to Jerusalem, or, or certain communities were praying in different languages, meaning that they might have kind of not gotten the, so to say, update on what things that were changing, or, you know, people writing new hymns, and just like in, I don't know, you can say about probably in Leuven, the same thing, you go to one church, it's slightly different, even within the same same right. church. So Certainly different languages even in Louisville. Yeah, English, languages. Dutch, yeah. And French not so far from here. So Different styles of praying, yeah. different yeah. Uh, um, prayers, 
uh, and that's all within the same church that theoretically has kind of an official yeah. uh, liturgical book that people should follow, but there's a lot of freedom to, to, um, to towards diversity. So, so uh, essentially, you're, correct me if I'm wrong, you're argue, arguing that this Byzantinization was largely an organic process that was happening as communities developed and... Mm. Uh, within a particular place. Mm -hmm. okay. Yep, so organic and local and voluntary, yeah. based uh, under the influence of various external factors. Right. So, for example, holy sites were being uh, destroyed because mm. of either external persecution or lack of resources to mm. rebuild things. You know, you need to restore or renovate things right. uh, all the time, and they didn't have the resources. Um, then also the prestige of Constantinople in, in the medieval period, it was known as simply the city. So mm. that's why even in, we call today Istanbul mm -hmm. to the city, Istinpolin. Um, and so people in Jerusalem who are, the Christians who were once a majority are becoming a mi minority. They need support. They look to Constantinople. And so it's even, even people who were not uh, co-religionists, so to say, people that were non-Chalcedonian Christians also were, you know, mesmerized by the, the beauty and mm. the kind of the prestige and the glory of Constantinople and were adopting some of their practices as well. So um, my argument is that it was an organic and locally um, initiated process. Right. In roughly what time period are we talking about? Because I know there, there's a lot happening in Jerusalem, oh, yeah. like a, a tremendous amount that's happening, you know, Epics are beginning and ending, and Islam is on the rise, and the Persians are not far away. So, yeah, so it's roughly from the seventh uh, century. Mm -hmm. So, in 638, Jerusalem uh, is conquered by the Arab Islamic forces, and uh, so Patriarch Sophronius gives up the city, uh, and it remains intact. And then the end date is roughly the 12th century. So, at the just at the beginning of the 12th century, you have the Crusaders coming, then you have um, various Jerusalem changing hands between the uh, Crusaders and Saladin and things like that. So by this time, by the 12th century, you already see kind of the end of this process. So that means the way the local liturgy was the liturgy of St. James, so the Eucharist, as opposed to the liturgy of St. Basil the Great or John Chrysostom. So you see by the 12th and 13th century that those other liturgies, James is gone, mm -hmm. the, the lectionary, the way they would read the Bible mm -hmm. changes, uh, the feast days they celebrate, the hymns they sing are all more or less by the 12th and 13th right. century, the same as one would expect elsewhere right. in Constantinople or in, in modern Greece or in Asia Minor. Sure. So how, does, how do you think that your scholarship is intersecting with other things that are happening both within in, in our discipline, theology, historical theology, liturgical history or whatever, is intersecting with maybe social history or, you know, I don't know what philologists are doing. Where does your work kind of fit into this larger scheme yeah. as you see it? Um, well, my impression was, until recently, was always that kind of liturgists kept to themselves, discussed, you know, structures of uh, the order of prayers and kind of the nuances of some kind of very complex and perhaps boring um, technical boring, aspects. Never, never. Well, yeah, see, that, that's, 
I used to use that line, you know, when I'd have to give a talk at some conference where they'd need like the token liturgist just to make sure that yeah. all the different aspects of some kind of question were covered, that, okay, you can go to sleep now. And then uh, a professor, a colleague of mine told me, never say that again because people are finally cluing uh, into the fact that uh, liturgy is where a lot of people, uh, theologians, authors, uh, average, so to say, citizens would spend a lot of their time, um, you know, going to church. It yeah. was, uh, society was different in the medieval period, even, you know, a hundred years ago. That's not to say that everybody was, you know, pious and, and um, doing everything we'd, that the, you know, canon law or, or, you know, some kind of patristic texts yeah. or some kind of monastic spiritual writings would encourage them to do, but nevertheless it had a much more important role in everyday life than we presume today. And right. so um, another aspect of my work, I'm involved in a project at the University of, uh, at, sorry, at the Austrian Academy of Sciences and also at the University of Vienna with the Byzantine Studies Department um, called Religion and Daily Life. Uh, so it studies, we also call it the Evchologia project, so mm -hmm. it's directed by Professor Claudia Rapp at the University of Vienna and it looks at Evchologia, so Byzantine prayer books and uh, specifically prayer books that would be used by a priest or a bishop or a deacon, uh, so kind of the official prayer books of the church that have um, basically every kind of prayer that you would need mm. from the, the Eucharist or the Divine Liturgy or the Mass, as uh, Roman Catholics would call it, uh, the Liturgy of the Hours, mm. sacraments of baptism, uh, marriage, uh, would also have funeral rites, and then all sorts of other prayers that um, haven't been necessarily classified so well because they deal with all aspects of life from childbirth mm. to uh, agriculture to um, blessing a home to uh, casting out, I don't know, um, some demons or um, blessing all sorts of objects in daily life. So that's really the focus of this project, seeing kind of like uh, Father Robert Taft uh, called it liturgy from the bottom up, basically mm. seeing what, what um, how liturgy interacts with uh, what people are doing in mm -hmm. their daily life. And so the idea is that if you see uh, in some book particular prayers for blessing, you know, there's certain manuscripts that have a whole series of prayers for uh, blessing grapes and aspects of the process of winemaking. Mm -hmm. And so you say, okay, we can assume from this manuscript, because it's not present in other ones, that this is coming from a context and hopefully with a good colophon or other information you can say something about how prayer was connected with daily life and even in daily work in a certain community. So This is very interesting. It was, I think it was about two weeks ago, um, Father Frank Clooney, professor, at, um, professor of comparative theology at Harvard, came through and um, we were having it, we were kind of discussing some things and he noted this, um, this trend in scholarship and social history of um, critiquing an approach to history that privileges texts. And you know, he shared his thoughts about it, about the, 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 the unique preserve of texts and what they do. But it seems to me that in studying um, 
liturgy, yes, on the one hand, liturgy is preserved in text, and yet there's so much more going on in liturgy because it's responding in a, in a very, um, maybe even a very personal way to life as lived, you know. It's, so in a sense, yeah, it's, it's theology on paper, but on the other hand, it's, it's spoken in a certain context, and it's interfacing with people as they live their life. Um, so yeah, this is, it's you know, fascinating, this work that you're doing. You mentioned that, uh, that you are you know, working in various places, you know, Austria, I know you're from Canada, you've done work in North America, um, probably other places. So your, your, your profile as a scholar is not, not a hyper-local one. Uh, could, could you tell us what it, just tell, tell us a little bit about life as a scholar moving between various even modes of scholarship and maybe even, well, we can talk about kind of your, your faith life, faith practice a little bit later, but what's it like to be a scholar on, on the hoof all the time? Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's not so easy. Um, uh, I... After finishing my doctorate at the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome, I somehow, by you know, divine providence or miracle, got a job at the University of Vienna at the Catholic Theology Faculty right away. I, in Rome, I paid attention very closely how the coffee machines work at the college where I lived because I thought I'd be you know, working at Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so it was a pleasure to have a job. Can in, you steam milk? Is oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't do the designs, you, you know, like a maple leaf or some of the waves or whatever. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but anyway, you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things worked out. And yeah. Ended up in the yeah. So I had I got a job at the University of Vienna, uh, and uh, Vienna is a very well networked uh, city in general, but also for um, in academia, it's a, a good place uh, to have easy to have contacts with other uh, scholars in Europe, uh, around the world, also in Eastern Europe, um, former Soviet Union. So uh, through the proximity to Ukraine there, I got involved uh, with some work um, with the um, Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv and also uh, with um, the, the church that I belong to, to the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. and. Um, so that brought me now, I, I, since um, I left my job at the University of Vienna to, to work in Ukraine, in Kyiv, um, but the contact also, it, it, the Catholic theology faculty in, in Vienna is just one aspect of, the, of my work in Vienna. Vienna has been described as the Byzantinist's paradise. So, um, Byzantine studies uh, is not something that you'd expect at every university, unfortunately, but in Vienna, not only do you have a department at the university, you also have a department at the Austrian Academy of Sciences, mm -hmm. and uh, just the amazing projects going on there um, provide a very stimulating environment for discussion with other scholars, and so uh, that's how I was able to get involved with this project um, mm -hmm. with Professor Claudia Rapp. There were always fascinating conferences going on, and that kind of also opened the door to uh, participation in other conferences, uh, whether in the United Kingdom or in North America, uh, or here in Leuven, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So if I could bring maybe another dimension into our conversation. Um, you're also a deacon in the Eastern Catholic Church, as you mentioned. Um, I'd be curious uh, to ask you, from, from your own particular background, about the intersection of scholarship and praxis. Not only do you study liturgy, but you do liturgy. Um, and, and, and how would you say these two parts of the whole fit in your scholarship and in your life as a deacon? Yeah, so I'm a deacon in uh, the Ukrainian Greco-Catholic Church, so one of the uh, numerous Eastern Catholic churches, that is, right. churches that uh, are of the Orthodox tradition but are in communion with the Pope of Rome. Uh, each church has its own history and its own um, reasons why it uh, attempted to restore union with Rome um, and uh, for better or for worse uh, there's a, uh, it's these all these churches exist and there are oftentimes conflicts even here at Leuven there have been conferences about these Eastern yes. Catholic churches yes. and questions of unionism always arise I know Professor DeMay uh, here I think, in yeah there was the Balamont conference not so long ago exactly yeah yeah. yeah so um, so that's my, the church I belong to, um, and how does um, this, so I'm, I've been a deacon for a little less than a year, mm. um, and I was involved with uh, liturgy even before becoming a deacon because uh, the participation of the laity or um, basically those people not in the sanctuary, mm. not behind the icon screen as we have it uh, in the Byzantine, right? Yeah, the iconostasis uh, is extremely important because there's a, a very uh, strong em emphasis on the dialogue aspect. Um, and in, for example, Liturgy of the Hours, you can get by without having a priest, uh, mm. but you can't get by without having singers. So that's where I was involved uh, quite a lot. So being a deacon now, um, I guess, I don't know, I'm going to the personal side more, but I was, uh, people always talk about a vocation, and uh, I knew from uh, childhood that I had a vocation to work for the church mm -hmm. in whatever way the church calls you. Mm -hmm. so, um, so it wasn't a question that I wanted to be a deacon, it was that I was open yeah. to it, and uh, then last year there was a concrete call mm. uh, to become a deacon so I um, said yes. Uh, being a deacon is interesting because well um, now you have to walk or you don't have to in, in our church we're you know uh, we're not some kind of strict Athenites or yeah. something and uh, you know monks of Mount Athos or something but and we're not it's not a free-for-all uh, but the common practice is to to wear a cassock, so mm -hmm. black dress, basically. So, which is why you're dressed so much better than I am today. Well, it's easy. <laughs> you, know, you never have to worry about what you're going to put on. Um, so that's definitely one thing where kind of you're in the in going around on the street, and uh, after a while, I stop thinking about it. But I guess in a way, it makes other people think. Okay, there's the presence of. Uh, the church or people mm -hmm. of faith in the public sphere, even just by being present. Yeah. 
so that's one one aspect. For some reason, in the last few days, I've been thinking about the that quote that uh, Pope Francis often says. I'm not sure if he he invented it, but the one you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Use words. So that's attributed yeah. to Saint Francis of Assisi. There you go. Okay, but yeah, yeah. Anyway. but Pope Francis is one who's yeah, using it quite a lot it, yeah. recently. Uh, so in that sense, um, this kind of once once you're ordained in the church, you uh, you can't get away from uh, always thinking about this the the connections between um, uh, Scott, you know your your daily life and uh, your work in the church. So with regard to scholarship, um, studying liturgy as a layperson. Uh, and as a you know, someone who's ordained, in theory, there's no difference because you, if, like you mentioned before, if it's a study of texts, then um, then those texts are accessible to everyone. As a deacon now, I notice in liturgical practice that there are many moments where you have to do something while previously you were able to sing or focus on text. Now you have to go and you know incense or prepare uh, some. Uh, Prepare some aspects of the service while that singing is going on, and it um, it sometimes distracts you, or in a way, you can't really be focused on um, the prayer that's going on. And, and uh, someone told me recently, yeah, that's why it's called a service. You're you're doing a service because you're giving up your opportunity to kind of uh, really just be present in prayer in the service. You have to be doing something else. So. Uh, and then it makes you think about certain aspects of scholarship, you know, studying certain texts and thinking about, oh, what, what else is going on at that mm -hmm. moment and how that would affect an interpretation or understanding of mm -hmm. that text. So. you have any instances where you were, um, you know, pr performing service or preparing for it where you maybe got an insight into a text or... Um, where there, where you realized, you know, I really have to be doing both, otherwise my work would not be what it is. Uh, does anything come to mm -hmm. mind, uh, or you mean uh, scholarship? And or, service yeah, scholarship or, and service, kind yeah. of coming together and somehow informing one yeah. another and enriching mm -hmm. one another. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, sometimes uh, when I don't know, my own experience in the Byzantine rite, somebody's. Uh, analyze that we have in the same amount of time, let's say a service takes an hour in the Roman Catholic Church or in, uh, for example, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Um, nevertheless, in that one hour, we have three times the word count. So it's always the pace of our service has to be a lot faster to get kind of things done. So there's the sense of like hurriedness. Uh, nevertheless, you always try to kind of uh, grab onto a few words or phrases to kind of meditate and take away with you from the service. But being a deacon now, I notice that when you have to say um, these uh, these litanies or petitions that the people respond uh, to with "Lord have mercy," then these words that you know you'd hear all the time as a layperson, um, when you have to say them, for example, the first petition is "In peace, let us pray to the Lord," and um, when you when you think about that word peace and various aspects of daily life where there can be sometimes conflicts or some you know just between uh, you and some other person little uh, fights or miscommunication or something like that and, or you know in the bigger picture where a world that is always so busy and there's always so much going on then um, 
I haven't undertaken such a study yet, but it's definitely uh, um, on my to-do list to uh, these, uh, analyze these texts from a biblical and patristic perspective, because uh, very often the theological side of some of these texts hasn't been uh, delved into as much in, mm -hmm. in liturgical studies, because uh, at least in Byzantine liturgical studies, the um, first steps of just you know editing the texts or uh, compiling them or just getting access to them has only now uh, begun to be undertaken. So um, kind of a theological reflection on these texts is um, something that, at least personally, I become aware of that need even more when mm. when I have to, when I'm the one that has to say them right. uh, so often. So. Great. Well, thank you. Um, I guess the last thing I'd, I'd like to ask you and, um, is, is what do you see as, well, I don't even know how to put this, um, what, what is, how, in the big picture, what is the project of theology as you view it? You know, there's a lot of people who come through Louvre and they're doing a lot of different kinds of theology, but through your lenses, from your perspective, what is it? that theology uh, in an academic setting is, what's its mission? Where is it going? Where is it headed? That's a, a huge question. Um, um, and uh, I'm trying to figure out an answer myself throughout my life. Uh, in my case, I grew up in the church. My father is a priest. Um, my, in my family, we have the tradition of uh, married priests in the Byzantine rite. Um, and so, um, when you go to church all the time as a kid, you realize that kind of liturgy is the place where, um, D David Fagerberg has a nice quote where, church is the noun, liturgy is the verb. Liturgy mm -hmm. is what the church does. And if we're talking about theology, then, um, trying to find the right words uh, to um, talk to God and to explain or to present God to others. And so um, in my life, I've always kind of, I don't know if you want to say been sheltered or always been in the context of the church. So it's a matter of presenting the, the purpose of theology is to under, to find the, the worthy or appropriate words in this um, this conversation with God, but more and more uh, when you're in a university setting and when you're in um, contact, for example, with scholars that are beyond theology in the sense of, you know, uh, in history departments or in, um, you know, people who deal with philology or other things, then when, you know, after the conference is over or after outside of uh, the scholarly context, then you realize that a lot of people have uh, a lot of questions about, um, you know, basic questions about life and uh, presence of God or whatever you want to, people have different words, you know, higher power or um, something like that. And uh, in, a, for example, in a Catholic theology faculty, there's a need to engage the world Sometimes I've seen that by trying to engage the world, uh, the church or theology faculty or individual go out and, you know, one aspect is to meet people where they are. 
which is important to be begin a discussion, but then it seems that if, uh, if we don't challenge ourselves and challenge others, then, then the meeting people where, where they are kind of just stays there. It, yeah. it, it becomes static and there's no dynamic uh, kind of, not, not necessarily, you know, the, the goal isn't to, to go out there and, um, you know, force people into believing something, but to, to propose something to them that mm. you are convinced of and you've, um, you've had the experience, this positive experience of an encounter with God and, and to just discuss it with people right. because um, also very often I've seen that in a theology faculty, sometimes we, we focus a lot on administrative things or, you know, how many ECTS credits or whatever, and uh, you get away from what's it actually about. And, for uh, example, uh, I was at my sister's wedding uh, on Saturday, and you have people who work for the government, or people who are bartenders, or people who are, um, uh, you know, work in hospitals, and sometimes you find that they are the ones that are more engaged in questions about what is theology, what this encounter with God, or finding the appropriate words to, mm. to, uh, to engage in a discussion, to have a relationship with God, or to discuss God with others, and so you kind of think, oh, got a meeting people where they are sometimes, it's that uh, we've got to listen to them to challenge ourselves. Well, thank you, Daniel Galadza, for speaking with us today, and um, for thinking out loud with us about theology there at the end. Uh, we very much appreciate it, and we hope for all the best as you uh, have this conference this week. Thank you very much. Thank you.